0: Well, today is our last day in our study of Proverbs. We've talked about several themes that uh, Solomon in particular brings forward in the midst of uh, this wisdom of God in uh, the book of Proverbs as we find it in the scriptures. And so this uh, entire series is available through the church app and uh, now also on Spotify and Apple, uh, those apps as well, and, and of course the website. So just giving you many different options and ways based on how you... Uh, listen to things, what avenue you use, so um, utilize that. Last week we talked about alcohol, and um, many of you commented how helpful that was. For some of you, saying that was the very first time you've heard an entire sermon specifically on alcohol, and uh, so um, I've heard that was helpful even in family dynamics between uh, parents and children to talk about that particular topic, so grateful for that. Uh, today, we're talking about God's wisdom on parenting uh, with some specific attention we're going to give to discipline. And you may ask why that is the case. Well, because in places like Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, we have a verse that says this, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this verse has brought much encouragement and hope to parents Training leads to a result, right? If I do certain things or teach certain things to my child, he or she will also follow Jesus. But it has also led to much discouragement and guilt. As Christian parents raise children who become adults and do not follow Christ, they are tempted to sense guilt and ask, what did we or what did I do wrong? So we have Proverbs 22:6 we need to talk about it we also have proverbs 13:24 which says this whoever spares the rod hates his son but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him likewise proverbs 22:15 folly is bound up in the heart of a child but the rod of discipline drives it far from him and proverbs 29:15 the rod and reproof give wisdom but a child left to himself brings shame To his mother. So, the concept of the rod, as we find it here in Proverbs, has caused much discussion over the years. In many cases, it has led to a specific form of discipline called spanking. This has been a helpful form of discipline in many ways, but unfortunately, it has also been carried out in an abusive manner at times. In fact, some of you may bristle at just the reading of those verses because they were used to justify a sinful, abusive, anger-filled kind of punishment toward you as a child. And that is not honoring to Christ and does not represent the heart of God in the Scriptures. And so we need to talk about it. So as we're talking about parenting, here's what I know, right? Represented in the room, represented online for those who are watching as well, represented among our church family as a whole, there are many different dynamics in our presence. We have what some refer to as the traditional family, mom, dad, husband, wife, biological children. We have those who are single parents. You're a single parent because perhaps your spouse has died or you are divorced and never remarried. You're perhaps single and have no biological children but our foster parenting. We have that within the context of our family, and I love that. We have blended families. We have those who are on their second or an even third marriage, so therefore children blended together in a family dynamic from different people and different spouses. Uh, one spouse we have is following Jesus and the other is not, so maybe there is not unity of mind and heart in raising your children. Some of you are in that position. We have those who are married and cannot have biological children, so you've adopted or seeking adoption or foster care. Some of you, even with biological children, you're foster caring or, or adopting. Some of you pursuing IVF, considering surrogacy. Maybe you just pursue encouraging the children of others. We have grandparents needing to act like parents for some reason. Some of you, your children are adults and out of the house, and others of you just have your first baby. So as we talk about a topic like parenting, you can imagine the dynamic here within our midst of how it applies. We won't be able to talk about the specific nuances of each situation, so my goal today is to discuss a biblical framework for parenting that I think all of us can apply universal principles that will help guide you in the uniqueness of your family dynamic. As we get going, I want to strongly recommend that you consider participating in the intentional parenting target group that Mark mentioned that will be offered soon, starting September 20th. Um, There's nine weeks that are planned. Troy and Christy Nate will be leading that material uh, by Doug and Kathy Fields. And uh, so all the questions I stir for you today, you can ask them uh, in the parenting class, all right? We believe in that strongly enough that our child care reimbursements, uh opportunity we have, which is always available for those who participate in our community groups, we've extended that also to be available for this target group. So on these Wednesday nights, if you are in need of... Uh, Hiring someone, paying for someone to come and be with your children while you participate in the class. We want to help uh, remove that barrier for you uh, for those nine weeks. And so we have a reimbursement opportunity for you that you can check out. So, as we talk about parenting, for me, it is hard to talk about parenting without commenting on marriage. So, let me spend just a few minutes making some brief comments on marriage. First of all, I think it's important for us to always be reminded, right, our, our need to respect and value God's design for marriage and the family, even when it's not your reality. Uh, we talked about this um, in a great extent back in the fall in our Grounded series that we did. And so if you were not here or if you would like to review that, you can certainly do that in the archives on the website or the app, but that series went into this in depth. But just reminding ourselves once again, God's design and creation, his created order is one man, one woman, made one flesh by God. Uh, Following Christ together for life and following God's creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. That's God's design as he created it. God has put the desire for marriage in the heart of man and woman, and therefore I believe marriage is foundational and it is formational in regards to God's design. All cultures have some expression of this, husband and wife, relationship, you can travel around the world and see it in every culture, in every place. Even for those pursuing a relationship different than man and woman, those who pursue a homosexual union, right? Why is there this desire and longing to have marriage legalized and approved that we have seen over years? Why is that, right? Even though we would say that's not according to God's design, why, why do they have that desire? Because I think God has placed it within the heart of humanity. They are pursuing what is foundational and formational to humanity, this marriage relationship. So we need to always respect and value God's design for marriage and the family, even when it's not your reality, right? One man, one woman together for life. There are some of you listening right now. That's not your reality. That's not your experience for one reason or another. Even in that situation, may we respect and appreciate and value what is God's design and find God's grace in the midst of whatever circumstance you're in. A second observation about marriage is that I believe it's the most intense form of relationship we know. First of all, it's designed to reflect the full image of God and his glory, right? Male and female, God created them in his image. And so when we come together as husband and wife, as Genesis uh, 2 communicates and become one flesh, this is the most intense relationship we know, designed, I think, to deeply refine and to sanctify us. Right? You put two people with differences of perspective and preferences and character and all of that, you put them together for life. That's different than a friendship, of which you can kind of join, you know, jump into and jump out of, or maybe discontinue a friend. Like, marriage relationship, as God designed it, is to be that unity together of husband and wife for life. And in that, it is an intense form of relationship, the most intense. uh, designed to to deeply refine and sanctify us. Another observation about marriage is that it is one of the best gifts you can give to your child. One of the best gifts you can give to them is a Christ-honoring marriage, a loving Christ-honoring marriage. More so than the greatest birthday parties or the latest in fashion or technology, The greatest gift I think you can give to your child is a loving, Christ-honoring marriage. One of the ways that Kelly and I have framed it for couples along the way as we've sought to try and encourage this endeavor is to always have a Christ-centered marriage and to have a marriage-centered family. To have a Christ-centered marriage and to have a marriage-centered family. First and foremost, Christ being at the very center of your relationship as husband and wife. Secondly, then, in the dynamic of family, to have a marriage-centered family, to keep your marriage a priority, to continue to date your spouse and love them and cherish them. Um, Too many times we've seen when children come along, uh, all of a sudden the attention and the resources and everything goes to children, and in a sense, it becomes a child-centered family, and when the empty nest years come, a husband and wife look at each other and ask the question, who are you, right? Um, may that not be the case, um, and all of the challenges of, of family dynamic have a marriage-centered family. Now, for those of you that are single parents or divorced and maybe remarried, this is perhaps a hard one to think about and consider because you may already feel like you have failed. And I would just simply say, friend, live in the midst of God's grace and seek to live for Christ in that second or third marriage. Don't let the enemy make you think you cannot choose today to honor Christ, right? Um, Honor him in that situation. And lastly, comment about marriage is that the unity of mom and dad or husband and wife, is best for effective parenting. That unity is really important. Whether you find yourselves kind of co-parenting now in other relationships or whether you are together as husband and wife, the unity of mom and dad is really key to effective parenting. So in the midst of this marriage relationship, which is already intense, you throw in some little munchkins who are self-centered sinners right out of the womb And it makes the family context and sanctifying process that much more intense by God's design, right? Um, I love what Paul Tripp writes in his book, Parenting. And um, let me just encourage you to perhaps consider getting that that resource. Again, Paul Tripp, Parenting. Um, And in fact, if you feel that you cannot afford one and you would like to have a copy... Uh, I commit to you to buy one for you. And uh, so just simply write that on your connection card or let us know in some way that you would like to have a copy and you will receive one soon. But in that book, one of the principles he mentions is that there is nothing more important in your life than being one of God's tools to form a human soul. It's a great truth. The privilege, the blessing um, of being a parent and forming the soul of your child. Scripture speaks of this kind of all throughout in various ways. I love turning to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be a, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Friends, effective parenting begins with your love for God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It begins with your love for God. It doesn't begin with your money or how much opportunity you can provide for your children and so on. It begins with your love for God. And out of your love for God, out of the overflow of your heart, we're called to teach them diligently. This is intentional and purposeful. Some freedom is found in this as we look at our family units, right, of how we go about this for a Traditional Jewish families following an orthodox way, a child between the ages of 6 and 10, will be taught the first five books of the Bible called the Torah by a rabbi, and many of them will even memorize that amount of Scripture. We don't typically practice that within our context, but yet there's opportunity for us to teach them diligently in a variety of ways. What I love most about Deuteronomy 6 is that it communicates with us about, not so much about this kind of moment or event-oriented teaching of these things, as much as this lifestyle kind of teaching. Talk about it when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, binding them as a sign on your hand, and frontlets between your eyes. Those who took this command of God, literally, they would... In the Jewish tradition, they would wear little boxes of leather on their forehead and on their arms with scripture inserted into that as a way of doing this very thing. Not so sure that it's a literal command as much as it is just identifying with God. Like, man, my life is lived with the presence of God right before me, right? That my children see the active faith that I have, that I this love for God that is lived out in my life. Teach them diligently as you go along the way. Speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we just sang in your everyday conversation, recalling times of God's faithfulness, pointing the hearts of your children to God as you experience nature and the atmosphere, as you talk about situations at school and friendships and forms of entertainment, every aspect of life, how can we... Insert, how can we bring God into the equation? How can we point the hearts of our children in all of the various contexts that we face in life? I love what Proverbs 14, 26 says, says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. And in Proverbs 20, verse 7, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. what you live in your life certainly your children benefit from parents you are the primary discipler of your children it may not feel like it at times but you have the greatest influence and we here at crossroads love to partner with you we believe the church does not take the place of parents right but we instead we we love to come alongside you and walk with you through those opportunities that you have. If you haven't observed it up on the wall here by our children's check-in, when there's a jar with 938 Skittles in it, excuse me, 936 Skittles in it. Those 936 Skittles represent the weeks that you have from birth to 18 years old. That's the time that you have in those formative years. And so our student ministries, our children's ministries, they love to help Uh, provide resources for you. We pray you take opportunity to uh, read the newsletters and things, the books that are recommended and all of that. We try to provide good resources for you to guide you in the midst of that journey. We have a core value here at Crossroads, which says this, we love partnering with and equipping families as church and home blend together to influence the next generation toward authentic faith. Authentic faith, I like that phrasing. That's the goal to encourage that within our children. The New Testament emphasizes the role of parents as well. So Deuteronomy 6 and other Old Testament passages, but the New Testament does as well. Ephesians chapter 5 is a great context. Paul, who wrote this letter to the people of uh, of Ephesus, um, he he comments on husband and wife relationship. It begins with the marriage. Then in verse 33, he summarizes it with this. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We see the family unit in context here, right? Uh, Marriage and children. What caught my attention that I want to share with you today is verse 4 of chapter 6 there. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The word provoke, to stir up. Here it's communicated not to stir up anger in your children. I was taught a lesson of this. The Lord hid it home to me early on in our parenting with our oldest son. He and I... Uh, at times, we're on very different wavelengths, we communicated differently, and so on. We were a bit like oil and water. Thankfully, uh, God has redeemed that, and both of us have grown and matured, and we have a wonderful relationship today. But there was a time where it was not so much the case. And one time, uh, had an exchange with, uh, with my son, I stirred him to anger, provoked him to anger to the point where he walked in his bedroom and punched a hole in his wall. And uh, I left that hole there for a lot of years. matter of fact, it was just a couple of years ago when Paisley moved into that room that I finally patched it. I left it there because I wanted it to be a reminder for me of this very principle. And God used that experience to begin to change my heart of how I parented. So we're not to provoke them. We are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The translation here, the Greek word translated bring them up, is only translated in that way here, bring them up. It's used seven other times in the New Testament. Four times, it's translated as feed. Three times, it's translated as nourish. So the root of the word is kind of this, this aspect of feeding, this experience of feeding your child. And so when we say bring them up, it's like in life, we are to, to give them what is necessary, right? You, you put good things before your children most of the time, right, uh, to eat, healthy things, you want them to have a healthy diet, you feed them what is good and what is right for them. So bring them up, feed them in life what is good. And what is good is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The discipline meaning that which forms proper habits of behavior. Instruction is a word meaning to to instruct with correction. So discipline, teaching and correction and that which is in accordance with the Lord. So Paul communicates this clear call for us as parents. And then in Colossians 3, again, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, and he says something similar. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Similar pattern here. The word for translated provoked in this case is a bit different, though. It's stirring someone to resentment and bitterness. Kind of a prolonged treatment of what we find in Ephesians. Stirring them to anger in such a way that it forms bitterness within them. So we must be careful. But yet we have a clear call to teach them well, and to bring them up and train them. Now, clearly taught, we have this responsibility to raise our children thoughtfully and purposefully, but we don't get to do this just any way that we want to. So, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The words train up in the Hebrew... The Old Testament, it's used three times in the dedicating or devoting of a building for a specific purpose, this commitment, this dedication. So to train up, committing to train our children for a specific purpose. And that is the way that he should go. Many commentators See, two aspects of the way that he should go. First and foremost, of course, according to the way of God. How should we train up our children? According to the way of God, the things of God. What is of him and his glory. What God says is best, not what we think is best. So train him up in the way he should go, according to the word of God. Secondly, this can speak to the fact of training them up in their uniqueness, one of the things parents will often talk about is how every child is different, right? They take a different kind of discipline, different kind of focus, and they have different likes and interests and all of that. And that's the uniqueness of your child. It reminds me of Psalm 139, which communicates to us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and formed by God in the mother's womb. That God has uniquely designed you. He's uniquely designed every single one of our children. And so to train them up in the way he should go is not only in accordance with the way of God, as we know is clear from the Scripture, but it's also to, as parents, study your child and to see how God has uniquely designed them, how he's fearfully and wonderfully made them, and to, to parent them and to teach them and to train them up in accordance with that way, with how God has designed them. And that takes wisdom and discernment. And as we do that, it says, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So we have here this desire, this longing, this truth, that seems to be something that we can hold to as parents of God's faithfulness. So when he is old, if we are faithful to train him up, our child will continue on with that as the years go by. But that's not always the case, is it, parents? So I want to remind us in this instance, the Proverbs are life principles, not promises. Remember, we started this series that way. They are general understandings of life, but not guarantees. And so as we think about this verse, as I mentioned earlier, it's been the source not only of great hope for parents, but also of discouragement at times when there is a child that is not following Christ in their adult years. And we're tempted to ask the question, what did I do wrong? In the last five years or so, of for Kelly and I, as our children have grown and, and uh, stepped out of the house, most of them, uh, I'll be honest with you and tell you we've, we've wrestled with that, kind of what we would refer to as parent guilt. Boy, I wish I should have, or I sure could have, You know, and as we look back upon our parenting, as you've matured in life and understand things a bit differently, you look back and go, wow, I wish. Friends, listen, God never expects you to be a perfect parent. In a sense, of course you messed up. I mean, who do you think you are? Jesus? Right? You're a sinner saved by God's grace seeking to train the heart of a sinner who, Lord willing, will one day be saved by grace. Another principle that Tripp mentions in his book is that as a parent, you're not dealing just with bad behavior, but a condition that causes bad behavior. And that's the essence of the gospel, noting that we are sinners by nature. We all have uh, this aspect of original sin in our life. We are born as sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We don't sin and become Sinners. And so this condition that we are dealing with, right, not only in our own soul, but in the lives of our children. So I would encourage you not to carry the weight of guilt around with you like a 100-pound sack strapped to your back. Set that thing down in front of Jesus and let it go. As an older parent, live in the beauty and blessing of God's grace and forgiveness. Every parent has a need to confess falling short. Right? Blowing it more than a time or two. Hopefully, as a parent, you've asked for forgiveness of your children more than once. Let them see you, model confession and repentance. And children in the room or listening online, listen, don't expect perfection from your parents. They'll blow it. They'll contradict themselves. They'll have shortcomings and short fuses at times. They'll make mistakes. And as you live with your parents, always remember you yourself have your own shortcomings and sinful desires that they have to deal with. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's remembering, I'm a sinner desperately in need of God's grace and mercy. And I recognize in any relationship, I battle sin just like that person battles sin, right? The issue is sin, not the person. Children, the issue is sin, not your parents. Parents, the issue is sin, not your child. So we seek to address the sin as we love one another well. Now, I will also say this, parents, there is a difference between guilt and conviction of the Spirit. And if you sense the Spirit of God convicting you about something specific from your parenting and you have never dealt with that, then yes, yes. Have a humble and brave conversation with your child and confess it. And stop letting the enemy hold it over you, accusing you, discouraging you, sidelining you from the work of God. Confess it and live in the beauty of God's grace. So that goal of parenting is to guide, to direct, and influence your child toward authentic faith. The Scripture clearly calls us to that. So let me... End today with a few thoughts on discipline. A few meaning ten. So we're going to walk through these quickly. <laughs> First is just one of my observations that I would encourage you with is to think in terms of discipline, not punishment. And I would encourage you with that, even changing terminology, if you're not if you don't typically speak of discipline, you use the word punish. Maybe it's just me, but Discipline to me seems to emphasize more so the training over time. Remembering that parenting is about time, it's not an event. Discipline their mind and heart toward honoring Christ. And so think in terms of discipline, not just punishment. Number two, let's follow the example of our Heavenly Father who models discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, the next few observations will come from this text. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And every time I read that, it just pricks my heart. Verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So point number two about discipline is God models it for us as a loving father of all the ways God could choose to describe his relationship with us. He chooses the father child relationship. I find that quite encouraging. He understands, he knows, he knows what it is to discipline. And so our third observation about discipline is that it is expected, it is an expected part of parenting. Verse 7 says For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? It's expected. This is a part of training and and teaching and, and the instruction of the Lord. Discipline. If there is no discipline or very little discipline in your home, I would say you're letting the Proverbs 22, as it's described, the folly bound up in the heart of your child, you're letting that folly win. It's an expected part of parenting. Not pleasant, but expected. Number four. Discipline develops respect for authority. Verse 9, as he comments on the discipline of earthly fathers, he says, and we respected them. As a parent, you are the authority in your child's life. Your place is of authority, not friendship. You can be a friend, but you're a friend who has authority. And your discipline teaches them to respect authority your authority as well as authority in general, that there ought to be consequences for disobedience and disrespect. So discipline develops respect for authority. A fifth observation is that discipline has a season in parenting. Verse 10 says they disciplined us for a short time, the 936 weeks, right, of life. And throughout that, There's discernment for age-appropriate discipline. You discipline your 2-year-old different than your 12-year-old, right? Different than your 17-year-old, 18-year-old. Age-appropriate discipline. Start early is my encouragement to you. I mean, I know they come out as infants, right? Kind of helpless babies. But parents, start early. I've seen it far too often where parents wait and wait to begin to implement any form of meaningful discipline, and it becomes much more difficult later to do. Start early. We don't discipline our children their entire lives, it is for a short time. God has given to us a window of time to bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Number six. Discipline takes wisdom and discernment. Verse 10 says, as it seemed best to them. And I think there's some reality to that. Each child is different. Every situation is different. Some children you look at with a firm look and they crumble to the ground, right? Some children you can use a much more firm way of discipline and they kind of glance at you with a smirk. Like that didn't hurt right? They're each different. One of the things that Kelly and I were taught early on that we appreciated through the years is to think of it in three terms, perhaps, of your child's action. Is this an action of ignorance? Is this an action of immaturity? Or is this an act of rebellion? And as you weigh out your child's action and kind of seek to determine what category it may fall in. Each of those categories requires a different response. Ignorance would require what? Teaching. Immaturity requires what? A whole lot of patience, right? And some warning and rebellion or direct disobedience requires loving and firm discipline. So maybe that's helpful for you to think in those terms and your parenting, as it has been helpful for us. So discipline takes wisdom and discernment. And pray like crazy, parents. Pray like crazy for God to give you wisdom with each child, with every situation. And that's the hard work of parenting. It's the hard work of your own soul, right, to, to take the time needed, To handle discipline well. A seventh observation about discipline is it needs to get the child's attention. That's a kind way of saying it needs to cause some pain. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful, Scripture says. And again, different for different children and different ages. I would say the younger they are, the more concrete or less abstract the discipline is. Needs to be, so that they get it. And here we can return to the three Proverbs that we read earlier about the rod. Proverbs 13, for example, verse 24: Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. What is the rod? Well, in the scriptures, the rod or clear, the rod is clearly a a tool used by a shepherd to protect and beat away other animal threats and even thieves. That's the rod. That was the tool that they would use to, as a weapon for protection. Different than the staff, perhaps. Now, some shepherds may have been trained with the staff to use it both as a rod and a staff, but they were separate instruments, the staff being the one maybe you're most familiar with. with it has the, the rounded top. And the crook of the staff was used to guide by the neck or by the stomach. Proverbs 23, 4, maybe the most familiar teaching of the rod and staff, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why does the rod and staff of God, right, of Christ, the good shepherd, why does the rod and staff comfort us? Because it protects us from evil. I will fear no evil. Why? Because of your rod and your staff, that which is used to defend and to beat away the enemy. So clearly, the rod is a tool used to protect. Sheep are defenseless animals, so they need someone looking after them, just like our children do. In the years of raising them, I saw a video the other day. It was a reel. made me laugh, and even visualizing it kind of makes me laugh once again. But this, this uh, out in the field, they were digging this ditch about three feet wide, uh, the length of the field, and and a sheep had found its way trapped in the ditch, and the shepherd was kind of straddling the ditch to lift out the sheep and to bring it to safety. And so he lifts out the sheep and places it on safe ground, and the startled, the sheep begins to run and runs and about 30 feet later jumps right back into the same ditch, right? We need someone to guide us. So the rod is used for defense. The rod is also used as a tool of correction. A tool of correction, I won't take the time to share with you other verses of which we see the rod mentioned, but throughout the scripture, it's used as a tool of correction. And this is where um, the specific form of discipline, spanking, has often been uh, taught in regards to the rod. Um, and I do not take a lot of time on this other than to say, uh, I think spanking can be, and even at times should be, a form of discipline when done well, when done patiently, lovingly, and thoughtfully. Remember, you're, you're, you're getting at the heart, not just behavior. And so to do it thoughtfully, to have conversation with your child, not to just re- overreact in the situation and use a physical strike to let out your frustration. That is an incorrect use of that. And at times, even as abusive It can be used as a form of discipline. Over the years, we've uh, tried to do that when our children were younger. Um, And if this is helpful at all, typically the way we would handle situations is when something was done that was considered rebellion or direct disobedience. uh, They would often be sent to the room, their bedroom, and our boys would say that was the worst part, anticipating in the bedroom uh, dad coming. There was conversation before any manner of discipline um, so that they understood the why and what was going to happen. There was the application of that discipline. And then there was a loving embrace afterward, assuring them of our love for them. So it can be a form of discipline. It doesn't have to be the only form of discipline. There's other methods timeouts or grounding or restrictions or things of that nature, right? And this is where the wisdom and discernment of parenting comes in. How do we discipline our children? Whatever it is, whatever method you decide, it needs to get your child's attention. The manner of discipline is unpleasant or painful. Uh, And so we need to consider that. And just some thoughts for you in the midst of that as you yourselves determine what God would have you to do. An eighth observation of discipline is that it has lasting fruit, the blessing of it. Verse 11, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Um, so it has lasting fruit, has a good outcome when done well. A ninth observation and the tenth can kind of go together uh, Consistency and clarity are key in discipline, being clear of what um, the discipline is for, being clear of what the expectations are, and consistency to follow through. And number 10, value the process and progress over perfection. No one has ever had the perfect child, and neither will you, right? But consistency and clarity over time will train a heart toward honoring Jesus and pray like crazy for them, right? Pray like crazy for them. Um, Remember not to get so focused on needing to do everything right that you forget that the heart transformation of your child and you uh, are a result of the work of the Spirit of God within you. So pray for them. Pray for your children earnestly and by name. Pray for them daily um, that they'll know the love of Christ. To finish out, Paul Tripp makes this one last observation. No parent gives mercy better than the one who is convinced that he desperately needs it himself. Right? No parent gives mercy better than the one who is convinced that he desperately needs it himself. That's the gospel. The good news of Jesus, realizing parents. We battle sin, our children battle sin, and the goal is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, lovingly, graciously, truthfully, um, to honor Him and to glorify Him. Amen? So may the Spirit give us wisdom, parents, grandparents, um, in this endeavor. And uh, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, Uh, may the Spirit of God help us with that next generation uh, to raise them well for His glory. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this, uh, Lord, uh, we um, come to You asking, Lord, for Your grace and Your mercy. We are uh, sinners saved by Your grace, uh, wrestling with our own imperfections and weaknesses and seeking to parent well those whom you have entrusted to us, whether that's through biological children, whether that's through adoption, through foster care, whatever it may be, Lord, you have entrusted to us um, lives, souls, and the blessing we get to have of forming and shaping, being used as a tool of you to, to form and shape the soul of that child. Help us, dear Lord. We need you desperately in the midst of that. Um, Give to us that wisdom and discernment that only comes through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.